So, um, you know what the topic is? <laughs> or no? Huh? Like some people know, most people don't. Is that what's going on? Well, I've been asked to speak about things we've never been told about God. Is that okay, or you want someone else? <laughs> huh? Sounds great. Sounds great. You know, unfortunately, in the Western world and under the influence of the Western world, God's been getting a really bad rap. We see an enormous rise in atheistic ideas and philosophies that don't really address this subject. Part of the problem lies with the ideas that people promote about God. Many of the ideas that are promoted, we also don't support. But if somebody promotes a bad idea, it doesn't mean the actual subject is bad. It just means you don't know what you're talking about. And because of so much misrepresentation, people become quite disappointed. They um, feel that potentially um, God or anything that represents God is really non-existent. And that, that's really not a sound philosophy. The atheistic idea that, oh, I'm going to reject people that have faith in the existence of God is exactly, you, these are two sides of the same coin. Faith in the existence of God and the denial in his existence. It's two sides of the same, the same idea. What was taught since time immemorial from the Vedas is absolutely extraordinary. They understood that the absolute truth, the highest truth, is manifest and experienced in three ways. The first was called Brahman. The second was called Paramatma. And the third was called Bhagavan. I, I just, this first feature, Brahman, it speaks about a vast and limitless ocean of non-differentiated spiritual energy that is so pure and extraordinary. It is an ocean of spiritual light and existence. It is called the Brahm Jyoti. And certain classes or categories of yogis sought through mystical yoga experiences to be able to raise the life air gradually to the point where they could leave the body through the top of the head. This was called the Brahma Rudra. And they would enter into this spiritual ocean of light. This experience was incredibly profound. And it was utterly life-altering. When one had this experience, 
everything changed. A person experienced absolute fearlessness. They could, they could stand there and let somebody attack them and kill them if they were in that situation, and it doesn't spaz them out. Because they, were, they had fully experienced that they, their eternality, that they can never be killed, they can never be cut into pieces, never be drowned or burned. You can do that to my body, but you can't do it to me. Now, in, in 800 AD, which may sound like a long time ago, 1,200 years ago, Sounds like a long time, but actually for the yogis, this wasn't very long. This is relatively modern history it, with what the, the time um, scales that they, they dealt with. There was a, a great personality who manifest in India. He was understood to be an incarnation of Lord Shiva. His name was Shankaracharya, Adi Shankar. Adi Shankar was a great and worshipable personality, but he had an unenviable job, and that was to reinstitute the authority of the Vedas, because at that time, Buddhism had become so pervasive that Vedic teaching had fallen really by the wayside. And the way in which he did this was to fundamentally teach Buddhism, a form, a veiled form of Buddhism, and demonstrate that this idea, this it arose from the Vedas. Unfortunately, and I know some people may take exception, but I say this in, in tr because it is the truth, Many, not all, but many of the things he propounded were not ideas that actually came from the Vedas. It was an interpretation. And he developed his own philosophy. Now, in the Western world, not just in the Western world, in India also, this philosophy became incredibly pervasive. And many people have become very much influenced by the idea that he taught. The big problem with it is he makes no distinction between you and I, the living being, and any supreme spiritual existence. He says there is no distinction. It's all the same. And of course, that leads to the idea that you and I are God, which is openly declared, at least amongst the people in the know. The people that are considered neophytes, they won't say this kind of thing because it spazzes people out, as it should. But for this reason, this philosophical idea was actually rejected in the original Vedic teachings and by all of the great acharyas from before the time and after the time of Shankaracharya. This feature of God, if we can use that term, is, is a authentic and amazing spiritual realization to be able to have the experience of even approaching the outer limits of this ocean of spiritual and energetic light. But that experience only makes it so I can be absolutely and completely relieved of all forms of anxiety, that I am absolutely fearless. And in this state, 
one is said to be spiritually very happy. This second feature of the absolute truth is called Paramatma. The living being, you and I, we're talking about the spiritual being within the body. This is called Atma. Atma means the self. It literally means the self, who you are. And Param means supreme, the supreme self. Within the Vedas and the Upanishads, you have so many famous verses, Nitya Nityanam Chaitana Chaitanana, that amongst all eternal beings, there is one who is supreme. Amongst all conscious entities, there is one who is supreme. And he is supplying the needs of all others. This was understood by practically all yogis. And their object of meditation for those who followed the Ashtanga yoga process, at least within the last about 3,000 years, prior to that, the Ashtanga yoga process was accepted as being part of the path of bhakti. But with a change of focus, it was used differently. But it was primarily used to bring one to the condition of the realization of this particular feature of God or the absolute truth, known as the supreme soul. The Upanishads speak about, and the Puranas as well, speak about how they, they make this analogy of like two birds sitting in the same tree. The tree is understood to be the material body. And within this tree, there are two entities, not one. There are two entities. One, is, one bird is busily hopping from one branch of the tree to the next, trying to enjoy all the fruit of that tree. But the second bird is simply waiting for that first bird to turn and recognize the presence of his eternal friend and to reconnect and reestablish this relationship. The practice of yoga, as it was authentically taught, was very much focused on this form of spiritual realization. You know Krishnamacharya? Some people, maybe. He is actually considered to be the father of, of the, the modern yoga movement. His um, two of his disciples were Pratabi Joyce and Ayingir. Uh, and so almost all the yoga teaching that came to the West, apart from a few others, were, were because of what, what he taught and what he proposed and propounded. But he encountered a big problem when he began to teach Westerners. Westerners had no culture they don't know what it means to approach a spiritual authority. And so when he says something that they don't like, they would argue with him. They wouldn't inquire. They would say, no, I don't believe that. I don't accept that. No. And this was absolutely shocking because in the culture, the spiritual culture, the position of guru was of paramount importance. There was this need to find 
and to examine and to question a spiritual authority to learn whether they are actually spiritually realized and a real torchbearer of the truth. And when one finds such a person, one simply offers their life in supplication and they are now guided on a spiritual path. This was the process. And here you have arrogant individuals who place themselves on the same level as a person has person who has profound spiritual understanding that is not just arising from argument and book knowledge, but from personal realization and from this vast lineage of spiritual truth. Krishnamacharya, he was in the line of Ramanuja, the Sri Sampradaya. He did not speak about that very much with his students because they couldn't accept. So he and his disciples, you know, they, they also recognized this and it was so shocking and disturbing to see people approach with such arrogance and thinking they know what their teacher knows and what they hold to be true is equal to everything else. This is a symptom of a form of arrogance that makes it actually almost impossible for a person to really cultivate spiritual knowledge from a teacher. So they just, they didn't talk about these things. They taught the very fundamentals, asana, pranayama, and to a small degree, dhyana, meditation. And they reserved their personal practices for themselves and did not share them because people just couldn't handle it or couldn't, under, couldn't accept it. And that is a great shame because then they, these people become deprived of an amazing opportunity. In the very last part of his life, Krishnamacharya wrote um, a poem, Yog Anjelishram, the great and blissful sweetness of this offering of yoga. And in these, in this poem, which was written in Tamil and translated by his son, Desikachara, he begins the very first, very first verse in that poem. O sleepy mind. See, uh, the yoga teachings, it's really, <laughs> the yogis develop an interesting relationship with their mind rather than the mind dominating and controlling and deciding and dragging. The mind is seen as an instrument that we are meant to put to use, not that we become used by it. Completely different way of, of approaching things. So, O sleepy mind, praise Gopala, Lord Krishna, and Lord Hayagriva, the God of knowledge, and pray to the venerable teacher, for when the body becomes weak and depleted, today's education will not save you. Reflect constantly on the message of Yoghan Jelishram, Dwell on the eternal while doing your asana. Regulate your breath through pranayam. Meditate on the ever-compassionate Lord dwelling in the heart. And then a few verses later, he talks about the outcome of such meditative practice, where he says, 
seeing the beauty of the Lord in his heart, whose consort is goddess Lakshmi, the goddess of fortune, the Lord who supports the universe. The yogi, seeing this, dancing with joy, is lost in this vision. He is speaking about a form of spiritual realization where instead of seeking to merge into an impersonal, energetic ocean of spiritual light, that one actually begins to witness this feature of the personality of Godhead, who becomes, who is residing within the heart of all living beings. And when the yogis have this vision, it is so thrilling. It is so ecstatically wonderful that the hair stands on end, profuse goosebumps, the shedding of tears from this vision. And just overwhelmed with awe and a feeling of great love and affection at witnessing this form that was so transcendentally extraordinary and so incredibly beautiful that seeing this, the yogi wanted nothing more than to constantly bathe their spiritual eyes in this transcendental form. And this is the way almost all yogis meditated. And this was their goal. This is what they sought. And it is so incredibly sad that today the art of Paramatma meditation is practically lost. Nobody knows anything about it nor do teachers teach it, nor do students practice it. And this is, is extremely unfortunate. If you want to come to know who you truly are, the process of self-realization, you must seek the answer to three things. What is my essence? What am I constituted of? What is my position? Where do I fit in relation to other living beings and any supreme being if such a being exists? And this whole material universe in which I am residing, where do I fit? What's, where's my place? And the third is that the living being, the spiritual being, if you are stripped of all material covering, the gross body and the subtle body, in your pure spiritual state, what will you do? What will you do? How do you express anything? What is your natural function? If you do not answer these three questions, you have not experienced complete self-realization. So this experience of, of the Brahman, the Brahma Jyoti, merging into this ocean of light, all it did was free you from material entanglement and fears and anxieties because you realized your spiritual existence and the fact that you are eternally existent, that was, prof uh, it was profoundly wonderful, a form of joyfulness that could not be compared to anything in this world. And yet, with Paramatma realization came a form of spiritual blissfulness that was even greater. The experience of the impersonal feature of God or the absolute truth 
leads one to equate themselves with that ocean of spiritual light and not see any difference. But the truth is, my position, where I fit, becomes apparent when I see that within Brahman, there is actually variegatedness, spiritual variety. The third aspect of the absolute truth is the actual personal feature of Godhead known as Bhagavan. The feature of Paramatma is a feature that is manifested within material creation. It is this feature that is our eternal guide, that is the eternal and original Guru, the Adi Guru, this feature of the Paramatma, who is able to direct the wanderings of the living being if we are willing to open our hearts to this instruction. If we choose to avoid listening, then that is our expression of our freedom of choice, but it is not in our interest because we will find ourselves constantly making the wrong choices. We seek happiness. Who has found it? What is the happiness that one can fully experience in this world? Will it utterly satisfy you? No, it will not. It can't. The experience of pleasure and the actual experience of happiness are different things. One can be constantly stimulated with physical pleasure and mental pleasure and be profoundly unhappy. You can be taking vast amounts of stimulants. You can be having copious amounts of sexual activity. You can be endlessly eating you can be constantly doing, just bombarding your senses with so many things and still be suicidal. This is proof that material pleasure, pleasure of the body and the mind, is not the same as the happiness that we actually seek. Not the same. There's no connection. In fact, one actually gets in the way of the other. That's another big subject. <laughs> We're doing like, you know, like this is like speed dating. <laughs> We're just <laughs> spending a couple of minutes on each little thing here because our time is short. But these are really important subjects. When the yogi encountered this feature of Paramatma, where they saw in their spiritual, with spiritual vision, the Lord seated within the region of their heart. He is actually standing upon a lotus flower and he is dazzlingly brilliant. And his countenance is so sweet. It is so sweet that his glance literally slays the yogi. <laughs> literally, he is just like gone. He has never seen anything so profoundly beautiful and so utterly moving. And one recognizes, all my life I have searched for love. The desire to love and to be loved is actually a spiritual desire. It is not a material desire. It does not arise from the body or the mind. And your attempts to fulfill the need for love with material personalities 
can never fulfill you or give you what you truly somehow hanker for and want. When the yogis encountered this feature of Paramatma, there was this instant recognition of this eternal relationship and connection. And I realize that this is actually the Lord of my heart. This is what I have been seeking lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. But in this realization, there is not a mature development of that love. The mature development of spiritual love is only experienced with the feature known as Bhagavan. This feature of Bhagavan was also an object of meditation of the greatest Paramahamsa, the great swan-like spiritual personalities. They, in their maturity of their meditation, were able to encounter this feature of the absolute truth. And it was so utterly, utterly overwhelming that one would simply be swooning, swooning to have this experience. A great teacher in our lineage has written and it is actually extracted from the Vedas, that the amount of happiness that one experiences in merging into the ocean of spiritual light known as the Brahma Jyoti is far greater than any material experience. And one, one has that, one has no attraction to this world. And yet, that amount of what seems like infinite pleasure is compared to the amount of water in the hoofprint of a cow compared to the ocean, which is said to be the experience of such profound ananda, Brahm ananda, the great bliss that comes from the spiritual experience, the full and mature experience of this love, the spiritual love. And it doesn't stop there. <laughs> this feature of Bhagavan was a feature of this personality, this supreme person. You know, in, in the Yoga Sutra, this, and this really blows my mind. Now the Yoga Sutra is becoming all popular. People talk about it. There's translations and so much of it is mistranslated. It's, it's mind-boggling. Patanjali talks about the process of spiritual attainment of samadhi through what is practically a mechanical process where you spend so much time in breath control, in withdrawing the senses in the same way that a tortoise or a turtle withdraws its limbs into a shell. The yogis would withdraw their senses from the world. They would not explore out there if they wanted to find this fulfillment, that was an internal exploration. And withdrawing the senses from the world, they brought their mind, this is called pratyahara. They brought their mind into a singular focus. This was called dharana. So that they were now prepared for dhyana or meditation. And in the maturity of their meditation to become fixed in what was called samadhi. 
And then after explaining how difficult that is, and even when one gets to the topmost platform, one can still fall from there until and unless one achieves what was called Ashsampragyata Samadhi. And then he throws this thing out there. After talking about how hard it is and almost no one makes it, he says that one can attain this samadhi, this fixedness, by Ishwara Pranidhana, by complete supplication and surrender to Ishwara. Now he introduces a whole other idea that instead of my journey being about how capable I have to become, how great I have to become, how fixed I have to become, and by my strength and by my qualification, I come to deserve, he now reveals another process, a process of profound humility and supplication, that when one takes this path, one can attain the highest spiritual attainment. This is actually guaranteed. It is the mature fruit of that process. And then he speaks about who is this Ishwara. This Ishwara is first and foremost, he's called Purusha Vishesha. The living being is called Purusha. Purusha literally means person means the one who is able to experience enjoyment, enjoy things. And he speaks about this Ishwara is a Parusha Vishesha. It is not just different, but he is extraordinarily different. This Ishwara. And it speaks about his qualities and characteristics and how he is represented by the transcendental sound of Om and how one should meditate using this sound and meditating upon the qualities and the characteristics of this Ishwara. But nobody talks about this anymore. It's like everybody's just wrapped in either the material world, which is limited, full of faults, can never deliver what you seek. And every single experience has a beginning and an end. Your life in this body has had a beginning and it will come to an end. And you will simply move on. And all the stuff that you thought was so important becomes zero. You just forget all about it and you just move on. You dump your family, you dump your friends, you dump your money, you dump everything, you dump your body, and you just move on like it's nothing. Boom, gone. <laughs> and so they think this is just like a form of insanity to be obsessing so deeply about that which actually is temporary. We have duty, we have responsibility, which we must perform. We should be compassionate. We should show affection, love for others. We should be caring. But don't get lost there. That's not the whole picture. This feature of Bhagavan, though, was this was an entirely different experience. The experience of Paramatma. He was situated within the region of the heart, a transcendent reality, a transcendental personality that was overwhelming. The feature of Bhagavan was realized through mature meditation to exist in a spiritual dimension that was overflowing with love. <coughs> it is unlike anything that you've heard or could imagine. It's not like, you know, the personality of Godhead is sitting around on this monumental bummer that if you don't do what he wants, he's going to punish you forever. That's not true. It is a world of great spiritual joy and blissfulness. 
and the, even while being situated still within the body, one is able to enter that world, that spiritual dimension, in the maturity of their meditation. The vast majority of yogis who attained this state were constantly aware that this feature of Bhagavan, while incredibly lovable and attractive, existed in such majesty and opulence. Majesty and opulence. And one automatically felt humbled in the presence of this experience and realization. But this was not the end of the spiritual journey. For those who were deeply desirous of experiencing the highest form of love, Bhagavan manifests his original existence to such um, devoted yogis in another feature, a feature of such sweetness, such sweetness, where one is completely oblivious to the fact that this is Bhagavan. One is so lost in an experience of love that one can, one is completely unaware. There's no concept of God in this spiritual experience. No concept of God whatsoever. There is only this thought of the the absolute Lord of my heart, whom I love so profoundly that my every ounce of my spiritual existence is engaged in the deepest and sweetest forms of spiritual love. This feature of Bhagavan is best known as Krishna. In this different applications of yoga, in this process, which we understand to be like a series of steps or like a ladder. Those who sought to experience the impersonal feature of God, known as the Brahman Jyoti, they also would chant this mantras that we are using, Hare Krishna. And their reward was the experience of immortality, of fearlessness, of complete freedom from anxiety and any fear. Those who use that same mantra with a different focus, the focus now being this feature of Paramatma, they experienced that, no, <laughs> we're not all one. We are one. This is called Chinta Bedaved Tattva. Inconceivably, simultaneously, there is a oneness and yet a distinction. That I am one with the Lord within my heart, but I see him as the great object of my attention, my meditation my spiritual focus, and I experience a profound attraction for him. <clears throat> In the feature of Bhagavan, the experience of the absolute truth or Godhead, in this personal, most personal feature, one becomes formally engaged, actually formally is the wrong word, actually engaged in extraordinary 
spiritual exchanges where one is just overwhelmed constantly with the most profound and wonderful spiritual ecstasies that cannot be compared to anything else. So one can chant these mantras with any one of these three intentions and derive any one of these three rewards. It is your choice how you choose to meditate and use these mantras. But it is important that you actually become educated in what are the opportunities so that you can choose something that you will find most rewarding. All of them are legitimate and authentic transcendental realizations. But we understand some are sweeter than others. They are sometimes described as perfect, more perfect, and most perfect. <laughs> All of them perfect. <laughs> okay, so that was like speed dating, God 101. <laughs> Awesome or what? And it's so heartbreaking that this knowledge is not actually really understood so that people understand what the opportunities are for them to engage in an authentic spiritual practice. Okay, anybody have a question? Yes. Yes. Thank you for the entertaining and enlightening talk. That was great. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Um, why do you think there is this rise in atheism in our Western society at the moment? Primarily because of, of <clears throat> materialistic religion. Religion is not automatically spiritual. If a person is using so-called spirituality or religion for material purposes, politics, power, you know, then people don't like that. We become disappointed. We become disgusted. When we hear that God is incredibly judgmental, and if you're not on his good side, you piss him off, you got a big problem. <laughs> That's a really crappy idea that doesn't represent the ultimate transcendental reality. And, and many organized religions in the West, not in most of the world, you know, we, we're very Eurocentric. We think that our experience in our tiny little world is like the whole world. But no, the majority of the world doesn't think like that. You know, Westerners are busy trying to teach people that through conversion and, you know, whatever. But when, when religion becomes a political tool, fear is a fantastic way to get people to join and to keep them there. But if you are only presenting a very limited view and an unscientific view, I mean, there was this problem with the early Christian church where they held to themselves that they were absolute in their understanding of everything. They were infallible. And of course, that started falling apart. And as it started falling apart, then when people started pointing out, hey, no, that's not true, that's not true, that's not true. Those people were often burned at the stake or tortured or, you know, subjected to inquisitions or whatever to try and get them into line, you know. But it got to the point where it's not working. And so they had to make a decision in the, in the early church that they were going to be infallible in spiritual matters, but in temporal matters, matters of the world, they weren't infallible. 
And of course, then that gave rise to these two paths, science and religion, as we see it in the West. The rest of the world didn't have that experience because people's approach to their spiritual development was founded on more spiritual principles. It's not like those principles didn't exist within the teaching of Jesus Christ. They did, but they were misapplied and used as a bludgeon to beat people up, to get them in line and to, you know, for whatever reason. And so it, it created this thing where people really got upset. And then you had, you know, religious fanaticism, which we're seeing pervasively through the world. And in, in fanaticism, fanaticism means my faith is so weak, I can't stand anybody else that has another idea or another way of worshiping because it may mean that I'm wrong. And so I've got to beat the crap out of them and kill them and do whatever I have to do to convert them and get everybody on board. And, and this has nothing to do with spirituality. So while, for instance, within Christianity and within Islam, there are profound spiritual and eternal truths that we find in the Vedas and in all spiritual texts, but they are so often misunderstood and misapplied by people that are quite materialistic. And because of that, people that are kind of thinking and questioning, they go, I'm not buying this, and they reject it. And then it gives rise to this kind of quite virulent form of atheism. You know, to say that God doesn't exist is the most stupid thing you could say. How do you know? They say that people of faith who declare that God exists are fanatical and small-minded. Yeah, but if you do the opposite to that, it doesn't make you enlightened. You're just doing the same thing. It's just the opposite side of the same coin. How do you know? You don't know. How can you make such a declaration? You don't know. If you say, well, I don't believe, that's okay. Nobody's asking everybody to believe. That's all right. I don't have a problem with that. And if you say, I, I don't know myself, that's okay. You can admit that. But to make the broad declaration that God is non-existent is just the same kind of fanaticism that arose out of, you know, all these materialistic religious applications. Same banana. But it, it, in the Western world, it fundamentally came the clash of, of science and the fact that early Christian church really held to this idea that they were infallible about everything. And they got so much stuff wrong. And when it was proven, it was kind of like, what do we do now? <laughs> Would you associate technology with materialism? Technology is neutral. When we talk of materialism... The foundation of materialism is the first and foremost idea is that I am material. That's the foundation of materialism. The foundation of spirituality is that I am a spiritual being. I have having a material experience through this body, but I am an eternal spiritual being. So anything that promotes the idea that I am the body, the object of life is simply to stimulate my senses and to try and enjoy materially pleasurable experiences. And this way I will become fulfilled. That is materialism. Technology is utterly neutral. I can use it. I can use my phone to watch pornography or I can use it for my spiritual improvement. How you use it is your choice. 
There's nothing wrong with the technology per se. It's how it is used, the intent. Is it overly warm in here? Yeah. I think the air conditioning won't turn off. It's automatic. It's automatic? It's oh. automatically turns off at 8 o'clock. Okay. <laughs> I'm here. Well, I tell you, this is what we'll do. Um, you okay with that? Yeah. Thank you very much. There, you, there's heaps more. <coughs> sure. But we're speed dating, right? We just have <laughs> <laughs> like two minutes for the person. You know, <laughs> jump to the next subject. <laughs> Which is a real drag because... You know, I, what, what, I'm, what I'm attempting to share, there, there is a vast ocean of unimaginable depth of this spiritual knowledge and experience. And um, just kind of trying to encourage you to consider really seriously exploring. So what I'm, I'll suggest since... Um, it's probably getting a bit late and it's a bit warm. We're going to have a kirtan. And after the kirtan, if you want to ask question and talk, feel free. We'll, we can hang for a bit. The ones that need to go can go. Sound okay? Yes. So we will chant this mantra. This mantra, when it is used by those who seek to experience a relationship, a profound spiritual relationship with Bhagavan, with Krishna, this mantra is capable of awakening our eternal spiritual nature that is to love, to love actual Lord of our heart. So for the yogis who practice this way, this is a love song.